Now, productivity and prosperity go hand in hand. Read any news item on Ontario or Canada's productivity today, and the news usually isn't great. Words like lagging, falling behind, challenging, too often characterize this coverage. But whatever the coverage, the bottom line is that Canada and Ontario's persistent productivity woes have a huge impact on our collective standard of living and our quality of life. And we're very fortunate today to have two people who are dedicated to helping turn that around. John Ruffalo is the Chief Executive Officer of Omer's Ventures. Bill Curry is the Vice Chair of Deloitte. They're here to help us understand how Bay Street can beat this characterization and what businesses need to do to help our province sharpen its competitive edge. Mr. Ruffalo is considered one of Canada's leading venture capitalists. In addition to his role as the Chief Executive Officer at Omer's Ventures, he also serves as the Senior Vice President and Head of Knowledge Investing at Omer's Strategic Investments. For more than two decades, this, this chartered accountant has advised public and private companies around the world. Prior to joining Omer's, Mr. Ruffalo was a partner at Deloitte, and he holds a Bachelor of Business Administration from the Schulich School of Business at York University. Bill Curry is a, is a Vice Chair of Deloitte Canada. He is also Deloitte's Managing Director for the Americas and a member of its Canadian Board of Directors. Mr. Curry has extensive international experience, having worked in over 20 countries on five continents. He's authored a number of studies at Deloitte, including The Future of Retail Banking, Globalization and Financial Services, and most recently, The Future of Productivity, an eight-step game plan for Canada. Mr. Curry received his MBA from the Ivy School of Business at Western University. Today, Mr. Curry will present new in insights into Canada's productivity challenge, and Mr. Ruffalo, as a prominent venture capitalist, will respond with what he's seeing on the ground as he looks to apply these concepts in Ontario. Following their remarks, there will be a Q&A moderated by Canadian Club Director Giles Gerson. Before I invite our guests to the stage, I would like to encourage all of you to participate in the discussion. During the presentations, if you have any questions, please write them on the cards that are available on your, on your tables um, and hold them up and a volunteer will collect them and deliver them to Giles. And without further ado, gentlemen, the Canadian Club podium is yours. Thank you. Good morning. Um, it's great to be here. It's nice to be, if you're me, in Canada on a weekday. Um, productivity in Canada. Today we find ourselves about 25% less productive than our U.S. counterparts. The challenge with that is that, you know, that means that our, we, we are less well-off than they are. And while there is a price to being Canadian, you know, we have a collective environment, we have a strong social safety net, and you know we're sort of proud of that. 25% is a big delta. I think that it's more than what we would expect in order to have a different culture than our American brethren. In addition, the US spends $880 billion on defense. They spend about a trillion dollars more than we do, kind of relatively on a litigation system that is much different than ours. And their healthcare system costs twice as much as a percent of GDP than ours. So despite those sort of frictions, they're still 25% more productive than us and getting better. And we fall continually behind um, in this metric 
as a country and have for many, many years. This is not a new problem. You know, we look, go back to 1981 when we were basically at parity. And since then, the curves have grown further and further apart. So we've been spending time in the last couple of years uh, looking at this, and, and we published a report October 1st, and we looked at, at three different things that were hypotheses that had been raised over the last couple of years as we've been thinking about this. Uh, the first was that you know, we're a small business economy, and small business economies are fundamentally less efficient than large business economy, which is the United States. The second one is we're different. Our sectors are different. We're long in natural resources, long in banking, you know, and that composition actually makes us less productive because we're still, you know, good people. And the third was that growth matters. And, and um, what, are, what is the engine of growth and, and how does that matter to productivity? So we took a hard look at all three of those things um, and had some interesting insights. Size does not matter. So in Canada, if you're a small business, a mid-sized business, or a large business, you are less productive than your American counterparts. So in every size category, you know, we underperform relative to the United States. Interestingly, the shape of our businesses, the number of small businesses, you know, 98 point something percent, number of mid-sized businesses, number of large, is actually very close as a percentage. The difference we have in our size composition is big US companies, like the top 50, average 249,000 employees. Take Walmart out, and it goes to about 200,000. In Canada, those same 50 companies would employ about 49,000 people. So they're big or much bigger, but we still underperform regardless of size category. In sectors, kind of the same story. So when we looked at, uh, we looked at all sectors, but we really focused on um, the four largest sectors in Canada, consumer business, mining oil and gas, uh, financial services, and manufacturing. And we, except for consumer business, fail in each one. So far behind. Manufacturing, you know, in the last 10 years, we've grown our productivity 0.8%. The U.S. has grown sort of 6%. Um, and that gap just continues to widen over time. The interesting one is consumer business. So in consumer business, um, you know, we are actually more productive than the United States. And we invest more in information communi communications technology. And I think the reason for that is, you know, Walmart came to Canada in 1994. And so Canadian Tire today is not my father's Canadian Tire, right? We have world-beating retailers because they had to be world-beating to compete, and they can. So Canadian businesses, when we expose ourselves to competition, do extremely well. When we export, when we have um, competition allowed into our country, we do phenomenally well, and the retail sector is an example of that. So Shoppers Drug Mart, John Couture, London Drugs, um, Canadian Tire, all step up, all compete with Walmart every day, and when Target comes, they'll compete with Target. And so, um, you know, that's a positive thing. Competitive intensity matters. So then we looked at growth companies. We looked at companies that were growing more than 20% for the last five years, and we looked at, you know, what they contributed to the economy. 5% of those, 5% of our companies are growth companies, and that 5% create 43% of all new jobs. Five, about 7% are um, growth companies from a revenue perspective, and they create 41% of all new revenue. So high growth companies are a disproportionate contri contributor to Canada. We have, uh, surprisingly, for me anyways, one of the biggest surprises out of our recent study is that uh, we create, in the services sector, manufacturing as well, as many new startups as Israel, right? Like, we are phenomenally good at generating new business. We have innovation. We have entrepreneurs. By the time those companies are five years old, right, we've killed them. They've stopped growing. We don't finance them. You know, they, and we fail. And by the way, the U.S. 
is significantly below us in generating new organizations. But their ability to sustain them, high growth, through the life cycle, past five years, is way better than us. They start at the bottom of the league tables, and they end up at the top. We start at the top of the league tables and end up at the bottom. So there's a real challenge for us going from one to the other. We call the, uh, the young startups that we have you know, gazelles. And the gazelles have a growth trajectory that adds huge value to our economy. And sadly, what happens in Canada too often is the gazelles turn into water buffaloes. Right? So they slow down, you get fat and happy, long in. So the um, couple things on this. First of all, more than half of Canadian uh, small businesses, 57%, are lifestyle businesses. That's not a bad thing. It's just people choose to grow their business to a certain level and then to spend time at their kids' soccer games and to you know, go golfing on weekends. Um, and it's a fact. But our, our, our policy, our public policy, is around supporting anything small. So not sure that we don't have an opportunity to support anything growing after a certain period of time instead of just supporting anything small. The other comment I would make is large business today in Canada creates about half the jobs. Historically, all jobs were created by small business, but in the last 10 years, that's no longer true. Large companies create about half our jobs. So again, I think there are some learnings in our study from a public policy perspective that would be useful. But I guess what I'd like to do is pass over to John, and John is all about gazelles. So uh, I'll let him. You know, what, what, what struck me on the gazelles, don't the gazelles get crushed by the alligators when they go in the water? <laughs> I just was wondering about that. So, <laughs> um, so th thank you. Thank you, Bill. Uh, so Bill and I, over many years, have been trying to really understand the, the, the productivity and, and innovation issues, uh, particularly in this country. And I do encourage you to read the uh, Deloitte uh, report. Uh, the great part about the report, it really tries to address the, the problems, but using data. And uh, it was really the first time that I actually saw it well synthesized all in one report. So I highly encourage you to uh, take a look at that. And, and the part that struck me, and, and it's the part that I focus in on on a daily basis, is how do we uh, help mitigate gazelles from turning into water buffaloes uh, and, and, and perhaps have the gazelles become uh, eagles so they can soar new, uh, new heights. And, and it's, it's a complex issue, and there is no magic silver bullet. If, it, if there is one, uh, we would have dealt with that a, a long time ago. Uh, but another way to kind of think about it, and people always talk about it, where is the next Nortel or the next rim going to come from? And clearly in Ontario, in Canada, there is no shortage of supply of great companies, particularly from the innovation sector. The, the amazing abundance of engineering talent uh, tell you it is, we are uh, not second to anyone in the world. If you go down into Silicon Valley, the number of times they're talking about the engineering talent uh, in Canada, particularly in the, in the Kitchener-Waterloo-Toronto corridor, uh, is, is, is unbelievable, and they know it at a very, very detailed level. So they are here to pick off our best talent, so there's no question about that. The, the ideas that are coming from these, uh, these uh, entrepreneurs uh, are, are world-class ideas. Uh, once again, I use the litmus, te litmus test of uh, you know, top funders uh, in the Valley coming here. They, they know that there's, that there's an abundance of ideas. We have other advantages, multicultural diversity. It is an unbelievable advantage. Proximity to, the, to still the world's biggest buyer of innovation, uh, the United States. Uh, we have great education, great infrastructure. 
So we actually have the raw materials at the early stages to start the building of these companies. So the real question is, why isn't it that these companies that, that clearly, you know, and based on the study, we are producing as much or greater than most countries in the world, why isn't it continuing to grow on the, on the trajectory? And uh, we think there's five fundamental areas that at, at, at Omer's Ventures, we've really embedded it into our strategy in order to maximize the returns for, for our members. So we looked at uh, five particular areas and we're trying to address it. And what I wanted to do was give you a very real world uh, ideas. And, and these are only one set of ideas and, and, and there are many. The first, uh, I'll, I'll list the five ideas first and then I'll speak to each of the five ideas. Uh, a need for a stronger financing ecosystem. The need to support uh, mentors, uh, to, to support and mentor our entrepreneurs. Clear connectivity to global markets. Better access to talent. And I'm going to speak to the whole issue around cultural and risk aversion of Canadians, which was actually uh, referenced in the report as well. So let me just take each one of the five. And I'm going to give you an example of, of how we looked at these five issues and tried to really embed it in our strategy. Looking at the financing ecosystem, what this really means is the moment the company is created, we just talked about, there's no issue about the creation of the company. A, a typical, innovative, fast-growing company goes through a variety of financing sources. It usually starts off with getting some friends and family in, uh, money in there. It uh, goes to a stage where it might uh, seek capital from angels, so uh, typically individuals who have deep knowledge or competency in their particular space. And then you start looking at institutions when you really uh, want to increase the level of capital. And there are a variety of institutions in this country, and, and there is, uh, there's been a, a number of new ones, uh, in particular in the last 24 to 36 months, where they'll come in at the seed early stage, and there's successive institutions that will uh, focus in on whether they're early uh, stage or seed, early stage, later growth, et cetera. And if you look at the, as the company's life cycle continues to grow, there needs to be sufficient capital at each one of those stages in order to give them the fuel to continue uh, on their trajectory. The, the problem in Canada, and I'm going to focus on Ontario, three years ago was that it was virtually broken at every single one of those stages. I would tell you that uh, over the last 24 to 36 months, there has been good improvement, particularly at the earlier stage. There has been more angels in the market. There's been uh, incubators, accelerators, micro VCs who have not existed in the last 36 months, all starting to pop up. It's been great. You know, is it enough? You know, who, who knows if it's enough? But it's certainly way better than it was before. The challenge is, is that once you start the financing cycle, you need to continue to hand it off to the greater and greater pools of capital. And this is where Canada really falls short compared to particularly the U.S. And I'm going to use the U.S. as the model, uh, you know, just for the purposes of, the, of this discussion. So once a, a particular company starts to really show signs of 
this is globally competitive product, compelling, and they really need to expand to global markets. This is when real capital is needed, and real capital is defined as over $10 million, 10, 20, 30, $50 million of capital. The problem is there is that there are very, very few sources in Ontario and in Canada. And frankly, once you start hitting at the $20 million, there's literally a couple of sources in the entire country. The problem is there is that where do the sources then come from? It starts coming from largely the US. And if that is the case, therein lies the pressure of if, if this company is going to continue to grow, it might not grow in Canada. It might grow in the US or, or elsewhere. So one of the things that, that we had built at Olmer's Ventures, which is very, very unique, our entire financing methodology is designed to hit right from the angels, right at the seed level, all the way through an entire life cycle of their growth. We call that life cycle investing. Now, we did it uniquely uh, because of the, uh, of, of the level of capital that an Omers would have. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we have the opportunity to run it right through that life cycle. So, for example, in our case, uh, we, will, we will say publicly that we will finance from $500,000 to $30 million, which pretty much covers about 99.5% of all financing needs in this country in that, in that innovation uh, spot. There are other things that we, we, we should uh, consider be doing from a public policy uh, perspective, whether it's enhancing the shred for growing companies, not just early companies, uh, angel tax credits, corporate venture capital tax credits. There's a variety of other ways to actually stimulate more capital. Uh, an Omer's Ventures in and of itself is not gonna solve the problem. We've only, are, are only one solution, but uh, we'll need more, particularly at the later stages. The second one is supporting entrepreneurs. Um, like I said, we have a lot of great entrepreneurs, uh, particularly with an engineering or product-based background. One of the challenges they have, particularly as they start to scale, is they need a mentorship or ecosystem around them. The challenge that we have in Canada, and it's not, it's not a negative, it's just a, a factual situation. And you look in the valley, they have had uh, three, four, five generations, really since the mid-1960s, of liquidation events of, of, of companies, uh, spawns some, some good wealth, redeployed back into the system, experienced entrepreneurs, uh, experienced finance executives, marketing, sales, distribution, supply chain, etc. The problem that we're having right here in Canada is there's not enough of supply of that, not because we don't have the great talent, it's just really on the numbers side. And the, the other problem is that we just need to cluster that talent around these entrepreneurs to make it easier for them to, to mentor these companies, to provide guidance to these companies. There's some great things that are going on uh, in Toronto, for example, whether it's Mars or, or DMZ um, in Ryerson, but that mentorship and, and bringing that talent to these entrepreneurs is absolutely critical. And in the Valley, uh, in the Silicon Valley in particular, it is inbred there that these uh, entrepreneurs who have been successful feel a duty and obligation to help the new entrepreneurs. The, th the third area is the con connectivity of the global markets. The problem in Canada is, in, in, unlike the United States, is that uh, 
it's very difficult to sell globally when you're when you're bootstrapped at a very very early stage, and you and you typically look to your domestic market first. The problem in Canada is our domestic market is is. Uh, not big enough, but number two, and this goes into the whole productivity debate, the, the buyers of innovation to make their businesses more productive are not buying the innovation in Canada. So the customers tend to be in the U.S. or elsewhere. So that makes it far more complex for, for our entrepreneurs to actually start their traction from a sales perspective. So... Uh, you know, one of the areas is how do we connect our entrepreneurs far more to where the markets are? The U.S. is one thing, but India, China, Brazil, how do you do that? What have we done here as a nation here to help facilitate that to make it easy? Because it's very, very difficult. As an example, at Omer's Ventures, one of the things that we are doing is, and we have no choice to do it, we are opening up a Silicon Valley presence not to source deals in the Silicon Valley. It may happen but it's actually to connect our Canadian entrepreneurs into the valley because we needed boots on the ground in order to do this. Fourth thing is talent. Talent is the number one issue that from, from our investments that they tell us that this is their barrier to growing. And it's, it's fascinating. When you go into the valley, this is by far their barrier. And they look to Canada to poach. And, and our Canadian entrepreneurs are saying the same thing. There are some great programs, particularly the federal government are looking at, and we're very supportive about things like startup visa. Uh, you're going to hear about uh, immigrant, immigrant investor program, getting some people from outside of Canada coming in. Um, but, but it's also building a class of talent, uh, building an entrepreneurial class, university education, treating uh, entrepreneurship as, as a profession. Right now, we treat it as an afterthought. In the last two years, I've seen more universities in this country talk about entrepreneurship programs, but it should be treated as such. And, um, and, and once again, I'm going to use the real live example of, of Omer's. One of the things that we've just built, and we're in the middle of still building, is building an in-source, outsource model for uh, recruiting. We actually had to embed it inside uh, of us in order to find the talent for, for our companies. And we're looking absolutely everywhere in the world for that talent. The last thing I'm going to just touch about is culture and risk aversion. It's a question that comes up uh, all the time. Are Canadians uh, culturally uh, less uh, or more risk averse than, than, say, their U.S. counterparts? My comment on that is that I don't believe that is the case. Now, setting aside Silicon Valley for the moment, I treat that as a separate country. The rest of the U.S., says the exact same thing as we say in Canada here, that there is a risk-aversive culture. But when I speak uh, with uh, uh, Silicon Valley counterparts, they look to our energy industry, particularly the oil and gas industry in Calgary, and just think these guys are so far out there from a risk perspective. They think Canadians are nuts from a risk perspective. So it's quite interesting to see that. Now... The one thing that I would say is different, and I think this is a cultural issue. When you meet an entrepreneur in the Silicon Valley, they do wear failure as a badge of honor. And it's quite fascinating when someone introduces them, themselves. I first thought it was an anomaly, and I realized it really is the case. Somebody will say to you, you know, hi, uh, I started a company uh, eight years ago. I raised $10 million. I was going great, and boom, I lost it all. Poof. What a mess. 
Second time, I learned about it, and uh, I raised $20 million. I, I, you know, I, I, I had an exit, kind of got the investor's money back. Employees were safe. I felt pretty happy about it. Now I'm on my third one. I've learned from those two mistakes, and now I'm going to hit it. But they'll tell you that. In Canada, we tend to avoid saying what our failure, our perceived failures are. And the one you know, learning lesson for us is that you, you do learn more for your failures. When you are successful out of the gate, you really don't know, and you really don't ask yourself the question why you're successful, but you actually spend more time on, on the failure side. And one of the things that we have decided to do, which was very anti-Canadian, uh, and I remember the first time that we have done it in, in one of our first investments, we did a secondary transaction whereby the company was making lots of money, had cash on the balance sheet, and we wanted to invest in them. And they said, we don't need your money. Why, why would we invest? And we said, no, what we'll do is that we'll take some chips off the table for you. And the idea was it will de-risk the investment. And, and by that, I mean... If uh, you know uh, the case was an entrepreneur, on paper very very wealthy, but perhaps the the person was holding back a little bit because you have to watch out that it, you don't want to make a binary bet and lose your entire wealth. We took chips off the table. This person would be in essence taken care of for the rest of their life, and then we said, now double down, triple down on your bet, and go go uh, really hard, and and and. You know, this is, was a way to help de-risk some of the uh, the, the, the cultural uh, issues. So, with that, I will take a pause. Terrific. Well, thank you, thank you, Bill and, and John. That was, uh, I think, that was a great uh, summer sort of survey of the of the sort of some of the really sort of fundamental issues that are at stake in the productivity debate. Got a couple of questions here uh, already from the floor, but please send some more in um, uh, because we've got about 10 minutes or so, I think, uh, to to, uh, to probe our uh, panelists a little bit more deeply. The first question that I have is um, is an issue that John just spoke about. Bill, you didn't really talk as much about it as I thought you might, uh, which was the issue of risk aversion. And uh, you know, I know in the Deloitte report it it comes across quite strongly, both yep. of your reports actually, that. Um, that there does seem to be this inherent trait or characteristic among uh, Canadians and Canadian business community as well of risk aversion compared to peers elsewhere. Um, and, it's, and it's an interesting issue because um, all kinds of, you know, you've mentioned some of the policy instruments that might be used to encourage, uh, to encourage higher productivity, higher, faster growth, um, but, but the risk aversion issue still is there. And so... The question is, um, Bill, you mentioned lifestyle businesses as a possible drag on productivity. Is there a way to push entrepreneurs to give up going to their kids' soccer games and grow their companies? Or do we need to accept this as part of our national character? So the uh, there are three things here that I'll, I'll go through. I'll talk about risk aversion and the lifestyle businesses. Lifestyle businesses are a fact. It's not an editorial comment that people want to have a good life, and they can do that by being entrepreneurs. The, ch the challenges around that is the policy stuff we wrap around it. We did a survey as part of our, our first report, and we talked to 452 U.S. business leaders, 450 Canadian business leaders. It was a quantitative piece. And one of the things we asked them, we asked them to self-declare. Are you a risk taker or a risk avoider? And it's about 50-50. Canada and the United States look the same. Um, and then we asked the next sort of level questions. Do you invest in R&D? Do you take risks? How do you manage your business? And a Canadian risk taker and a U.S. risk taker behave exactly the same. 
And then we looked at a US risk taker and a US risk avoider, and they behave exactly the same. A risk avoider declares they take no risk, but in fact, they behave exactly like a risk taker. Canadian risk avoiders avoid risk. So they don't invest in their businesses. <laughs> they don't spend money on R&D. They want government support and tax breaks. They are um, a cohort of Canadian businesses that underinvest. In Canada today, um, for every dollar a U.S. business has invested in its business over its lifetime, Canadian business has invested 51 cents. Uh, today, the current investment levels in Canada on that topic, same topic, investing in machinery, equipment, you know, we're about two-thirds, 68%. And that number just doesn't change. So there used to be a time when you had a free trade agreement and a 65-cent dollar where you didn't have to invest because you had an advantage just built in. That advantage is gone. So we have a dollar at parity. We have low interest rates. We have good tax system today. I agree with John. There are some changes, but, you know, not bad from a competitive point of view, and Canadian businesses still do not invest in themselves. Because the productivity issue is not about workers. This is not about Canadians not working hard. We work just as hard as Americans. This is about for every hour that we work, right, we produce less. And we produce less because Canadian business hasn't, in, 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 at least in part, because Canadian business hasn't invested in the tools required to make our people more productive. And so it means we can't pay them as well. It means there's a whole bunch of things that go with that. Um, and one of the big underlying things is that culturally we have a stronger aversion to risk than the Americans. So I agree with John. That's like, a, you know, you make a universal statement. It's not true. Half our businesses are just world beaters. They're hunters. They grow their business. They're aggressive. And they're phenomenal. I go across the country. I talk to these guys, and they're incredible. The problem is the other half. And we can't figure out who the other half is. So if you say, who's the other half? Describe them. I can describe their attributes, but I can't find them. So one of the things we're going to do again with the quantitative study we're going to run next year is we're going to try and go and figure out who they are. We're going to try and ask questions to find out, you know, they live in this province, they work in this industry, they're this size, they behave in this way, so that we can start to figure out what kind of things we might do to encourage them to accept more risk and to be more aggressive. Now, John, you talked about the oil and gas sector as a sector that has a high propensity for risk, so that was uh, obviously it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a good example. Um, here's a question, though, about the oil and gas sector and its effect on the rest of the economy. Mm -hmm. um, does it, does, is it pushing Canada towards uh, a Dutch disease syndrome? And how is this sector, the oil and gas sector, affecting innovation, growth, and competitiveness of other Canadian industries and sectors? And what's your perspective on the future outlook of this situation? Yeah, I mean... Uh, so you're seeing another side of this. Yeah, uh, you know, the, one of the challenges I see from the energy industry is that I, I actually believe that the energy... Our energy assets in Canada should be viewed as a competitive advantage, not an industry per se. And, and, and I know this is uh, not agreed with by, by a number of folks, but the, the challenge that I have is that uh, the fact that we're pull it, pulling out limited assets, selling them across the world, and not even refining them here largely, but pulling them out and then buying back the product at 10 times uh, the, the, the cost of what we had sold it to them is not a path to productivity in my view. And yet here is a, a resource that is coveted around the world. We have an opportunity to leverage these assets to find and focus in on those few uh, 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 
industrial businesses, whether it's high-end manufacturing, whether it's innovative businesses, where we can actually focus in on and become a uh, globally do uh, dominant um, uh, world leader. I'll give you an example. Say in Sweden, so here you have Sweden, natural resource-based economy largely, and they don't have the luxury of population or dollars, et cetera, to, to, to place a lot of bets. They placed one bet uh, a number of years ago and was in wireless communications. And you kind of look at it and you say, why did a Sweden pick off and have an Ericsson and Nokia, two you know, top companies? They had to focus in on, on one particular segment of an industry that they saw a you know, future potential in. I think Canada's going to have to do the same thing. And part of the problem is it is easy to rest on the laurels of, a, uh, of our energy assets. But as that gets depleted or as other sources pop up, whether they're renewable sources or cheap uh, shale gas in the U.S., mm -hmm. all of a sudden you start to see our vulnerability on, on focusing in on commodity prices. Great. So... Um we talked about the productivity gap as having started around the early 1980s. I think, I think uh, Bill, you mentioned 1981 as, as the year where, where the gap began. Really, we moved away. The delta began between Canada and the United States. Um, so it seems like a secular trend. It's been around for a long time. And we've talked about it for a long time, and, and not much has changed. So here's a question then from, from the audience. Where in the world, other than Silicon Valley and Israel, can we find examples of sectors or countries that have closed a productivity gap? Who else can we use as a benchmark? So <clears throat> it's a great question. I think the, the closing a gap is, is the issue. Um, countries that continue to innovate, that continue to be highly productive over extended periods of time, obviously include the United States. They obviously include Germany. They would include the Nordics. They would include Israel. Um, developing countries are generally actually not very productive because they have high unemployment and they have a cohort of their population who are kind of emerging into the middle class, emerging into mainstream economies. So on pieces of their economies will be highly productive, others won't. So you look at the developed world and it's countries that continue to innovate, countries that continue to advance, that maintain a productivity advantage or an edge in productivity which allows them to be globally competitive. And so you know, one of the challenges we have as a country is you know, we're a confederation of provinces. We were put together 100 and however many years ago as a compromise. Every province, had, in order to commit a confederation, negotiated a transaction. So today, we live in a world where we have 13 securities regulators. We have a div different electric electricity company in every single province. We have supply management for poultry, for dairy, for chicken, for a whole, a whole plethora of things. So we're competing globally against countries that have a strategy, a national strategy to compete globally. Think Singapore, think Israel, think the Nordics. And we have 13 you know, disparate security agencies trying to keep their own jobs. And we don't compete effectively because we don't compete as a nation. We sort of fight among ourselves first. We have so many internal borders. Before we get to our external borders, that it creates friction. So it's, it's another one of our um, new things that we're trying to do research to find out how much friction that actually is. How much, how much challenge is it that, you know, in Quebec I can get a kilowatt hour hydro for 6.9 cents, and I go across the border to New Brunswick, that price triples. So businesses in New Brunswick can never compete 
in the same way as businesses in Quebec if they rely on hydroelectric on electricity. So you know there are things like that that I think are a challenge to Canada's competitiveness generally and impact our productivity. But I, I would argue that it's closing a gap is, is, is not where countries do. They, they stay ahead of the curve, and we fail to do that. Here's a question that goes to the financing uh, issue. Uh, one of our audience members asks whether uh, the Canadian financial services uh, sector will change its reputation among Canadian uh, small businesses, saying that most of most of this person's friends and in in, in who are, I, I assume, entrepreneurs, um, have been so poorly treated by their bank that they now go directly to Silicon Valley, sort of bypassing the Canadian financing uh, sector. What do you, what do you, is there a, I think there is a reputational issue there. I don't know how, I don't know how deep seated yeah, it is. I mean, I, I could speak to more on the, the, the venture capital issues as it relates to financial institutions. You know, it's, it's no secret that most financial institutions in Canada have decided to no longer be investors uh, in venture capital firms, um, you know, due to a variety of issues. Some would argue it's risk aversion, uh, it's expensive capital from uh, a Basel uh, perspective. Uh, it is a problem in that they were the traditional supporters of venture in, in this country, as were pension funds. And you know the, the biggest challenge that, that's facing the, the, the venture uh, world is the lack of, uh, of, of investors. When you have pension funds that have largely exited uh, becoming an investor, you have the financial institutions, it sort of leaves uh, corporate Canada left. And uh, that leaves and government sources, so it leaves very, very few uh, choices ultimately for the entrepreneur to get capital if we don't have a supportive ecosystem. Fair enough, Bill. Do you want to? Yeah. So the Canadian banks um, manage risk, so they're, they're not risk averse. Their job is to get a return for their shareholders on the capital that they invest. And they have three kinds of capital. They have regulatory capital, economic capital, and they have uh, rating agency capital. And each one of those numbers is different. And they focus to give a return on economic capital. And so you know, they manage lending to businesses against that. They have expected loss rates. They line that up against what they have, and they man manage to that. And they're, they're actually very good at it. So there are a cohort, though, like in order to be bankable, you have to get through John's venture capital round. So venture capital generally is when you, you see free cash flow coming, but you're not there yet, right? And so the, the banks will want to have somebody who they know will repay. That means you have to have assets, you have to have free cash flow in order to repay the loan. And there are times as you do a startup where that's just not the case. The risk profile for the banks is unacceptable to return what they want to their shareholders. So banks are actually keen on small business. They're keen on commercial business. Um, they just have a point in a life cycle of a business where they're unable to, to provide credit services. They'll provide banking services, and now they may be perceived as being expensive. But that's because many of the Canadian entrepreneurs who complain about them have never been to another country to see their banking system. Because ours actually stacks up pretty well when you talk about service quality on any global dimension. Um, and I, understand, I can get the frustration. But you know, the banks have a role to play, and the Canadian banks play that role pretty well, as we saw over the last, you know, since 2007, and how they performed, and how they have backstopped credit facilities for most Canadian businesses throughout that time, where other banks in the United States and elsewhere, you know, were unable to do that because they had uh, so many losses that they couldn't sustain it. Here's a final question about um, 
I guess technology intensity and the productivity gap, and you know, and I think the assumption being that uh, that that improving our productivity performance will, in some measure, depend upon greater technology dependency, technology intensity. Um, so the question is, would you expect Canadian workers to be replaced by advanced machinery and technology, resulting in higher unemployment, at least in the short term, as the productivity gap is closed? Yes. I, yes, I was going to say the same thing. It's going so, to, it's going so, to happen. The, you know, the reality is, is when you um, change the nature of your economy to being sort of a labor-based world into one where you want investments in machinery and equipment to become more productive, a couple things happen. Workers earn more money, right? Because you can pay them more because they generate more revenue, more profit per worker. But you do have dislocation, right? So what happens is when you close polywheels in Oakville, Right? Those, those workers who are hardworking people who've done nothing wrong, but you know, their employer didn't invest, didn't stay in front of the curve, so they, they shut down. Right? There's no jobs in Oakville that pay $28 an hour to do manufacturing labor anymore. So they have a choice. They're going to earn $15 an hour in the services sector, or they're going to move to you know, Alberta to go to work in the oil fields. And, and that's a dislocation. Uh, but that has occurred throughout history, right? Through the industrial age, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to accept it as part of the reality of, of what goes on. It's healthy to have the dislocation as you sort of reinvent the economy for a future world to be more competitive. John? Yeah, and, and Giles, you know, one of the challenges that I see, and I, I completely agree, there will be dislocation. It, it, it does concern me personally that, particularly on a demographic, uh, you know, particularly in the manufacturing sector where they're paid very, very well. The reality is the, the choices are not a choice of getting pay, paid well or getting paid or, 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 or decreasing your pay. It's not existing uh, and, and there will be a transition. And the problem that I see from a, from a public policy perspective is that it's very unattractive to admit that. And the current vote-getters are the ones who are employed there. And if I am employed in, in, in a manufacturing uh, uh, job that, that pays me well, I don't want to hear that I may be dislocated. And it's a very tough anti-vote uh, thing to basically admit that we have no choice but to not support companies that we know will inevitably fail but actually take our investing dollars and deploy it in those industries that we think have a chance globally. The challenge is for our nation is which ones are those? And it's about being strategic, and strategic actually really means saying no to certain things. And one of the most disappointing things that I saw was in 2008, Canada had a unique opportunity when um, our, our federal government was given a silver plate to basically take money from the future and deploy it right now uh, when the economic crisis hit. And how did Canadians react? We basically went right across the country, right across all industries, and gave a little bit to everyone to keep everyone happy. Very Canadian thing to do, as opposed to say, I'm sorry, but we're going to really play in these three areas, and I'm sorry, but these are going to fall off the wayside. Just one more comment on this. You know the. Um uh, General Electric has a place called uh, the Appliance Park. It's in Louisville, Kentucky. It was built in 1951 to 1955. In 1973, it employed 23,000 people. The parking lot's a mile long, six large buildings. By uh, 1998, 1999, it employed 1,800 and has for the last decade. 
This year, it's up to 6,000. So what GE's figured out is for their appliance businesses, their water heaters, refrigerators, you know, the, the wages in China since 2000 have gone up five times. It takes five weeks to ship, and the price of oil and the price of shipping has doubled or tripled in that time. So they can now build a better quality water heater in Louisville, Kentucky, because the labor input, because they're, they've invested so much in machinery and equipment technology, is only 20%. So they can afford to pay very well US wages, right, in order to do that. And their time to the warehouse, China, five weeks, in, the, in Louisville, 30 minutes. And so they're actually able to cut their prices by 20, 25% by building in America. So ML, the CEO of General Electric, says that offshoring is like last, the, the, uh, a dying fad, and that bringing those jobs back home will matter. So in Canada, that's also true. It's not true if you don't invest in your business, unless you have the machinery and equipment to allow those workers to be as productive as they're required to be to compete globally, you can't survive. But if you do that, we can actually create jobs in the manufacturing sector in Canada, and I think you're going to see that as a trend going forward. Terrific. Well, that's a great hopeful note to, uh, to conclude on. So, uh, audience, thank you very much for your questions. I think they were uh, insightful and, uh, and provocative. And, uh, had a good conversation here. Um, so it's my pleasure to, uh, and privilege to, uh, to thank uh, Bill and John for really excellent, I think, thought-provoking presentations that shed valuable light on one of the most perplexing and uh, deep-seated structural problems facing our economy in Ontario today. I think it's clear that our weak productivity performance is a very serious problem that demands our full attention, whether we're in government or in business, uh, or the financial uh, sector. Without a correction, as Allison suggested at the beginning, uh, we would appear to be in some serious danger of putting at risk our very future as one of the world's richest and most successful economies and our enviable, enviable standing, standard of living along with that. So the stakes are clearly very high. But also, as we heard today, it's a complicated, multifaceted problem that defies, I think, any simple remedy, uh, which doesn't really help policymakers or, uh, or business leaders. But it is something that we need to uh, continually understand, diagnose, uh, so that we can sort of move on all of those fronts uh, towards, uh, towards closing that productivity gap. I think the, uh, that was why we wanted to hold this, uh, this breakfast today. I think we wanted to have this kind of a discussion and really uh, take the benefit of the fresh research that's been done by, uh, by Bill and his team and hear the on-the-ground uh, diagnosis from, uh, from John. I think the most interesting sort of insight from your study, uh, uh, Bill, was the, was the, the gap in, in fast-growing companies. That seems, to, when you look at our economy versus others, we, we grow these gazelles and we have a problem, as you say, turning them into eagles. Uh, they, they often turn into water buffaloes. and, and now, to mix my metaphors even further, die on the vine. So, uh, so, so clearly we've got it, but it's a fascinating problem to have. Uh, I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn that we had such an abundance of gazelles, at least at the starting gate. So that's, that's, a, that's a hopeful sign. So with that, I'd like to thank you very much. It's, I think it's been a, it's been a tremendously interesting uh, morning, uh, breakfast, and uh, our appreciation to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Giles, and thank you, everybody. If I could only begin every morning with such a provocative and, uh, and mind-expanding conversation, thank you both. Um, I would also, once again, like to thank Deloitte for supporting this event today and also for leading in the research and in, in provoking us all to have this very important conversation. Thank you very, very much.
Um, this concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. Uh, we are grateful to Rogers and to 680 News for their continued coverage of Canadian club events. Um, you can learn more about the club and purchase tickets to our upcoming events at canadianclub.org. Uh, and to everyone in the room, thank you very much for joining us. Have a wonderful day, and this meeting is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.